Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. We are here today to talk about President Obama's State of the Union address Tuesday night. This was his seventh and also his last. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter for NPR. I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. And I'm Susan Davis, and I cover Congress. All right, so here is how it all started. Tonight marks the eighth year that I've come here to report on the State of the Union. And for this final one, I'm going to try to make it a little shorter. I know some of you are antsy to get back to Iowa. So that joke kind of set the tone for the whole speech, right? It was really influenced a lot by this big, intense campaign for president that we are in the midst of right now. Absolutely. And I think the White House kind of missold the speech when they said it was going to be future-oriented, not a laundry list. It was going to be about big themes. It was about big themes, but it was mostly a point-by-point rebuttal of what you are hearing on the presidential campaign from Republicans. And it was a defense of his approach and his agenda and the way he sees the big problems of the country as opposed to what you're hearing from them. So what are those points? Oh, well, the biggest rebuttal was the gloom and doom that you hear from Republicans about how America is in decline, weak abroad, the economy is terrible. Mm -hmm. And he very, very forcefully said, that's just hooey. Anyone claiming that America's economy is in decline is peddling fiction. So he said the American economy is the most robust in the world. We've got these prolonged period of job growth. The auto industry has come roaring back. However, he knows that Americans are not as bullish on the economy as he is. He knows that two-thirds of them tell pollsters that they think the country's on the wrong track, and they know. And he knows that he gets poor marks for his job approval. So he was very careful to, to explain that he understood how Americans were feeling, and he gave them an explanation of why they're feeling that way. And the reason that a lot of Americans feel anxious is that the economy has been changing in profound ways. Changes that started long before the Great Recession hit. Changes that have not let up. Changes like what? He talked about technology and globalization and how that makes it harder for workers to ask for a raise. It means that more and more jobs are being replaced by robots. It means that corporations have less and less loyalty to their communities. And And more and more wealth and income is concentrated at the very top. So one of the things I think is interesting is when I listen to State of the Unions, and I have to admit that this is the 14th consecutive oh State of goodness. the Union that I've covered. I'm so sorry. For I've you. lost yeah. count. I've covered, yeah, it's Mara's probably covered more than me, but I've covered everyone since 2003. And, I've, and for all but one of those 14, I've been in the chamber. So I always think of it, I look at it, especially as covering Congress, I listen, try and listen to it with two ears. I listen to it with one ear as being a Republican and one ear as being a Democrat. And what do the members in this room take? And I think these were two very different speeches. Hmm. Also, for one in one sense, if you listen to it as he was talking to Democrats, I think it gave them a reminder of all the reasons why they fell in love with Obama in the first place. The the loftiness of it, especially towards the end when he talked about the American idea and compassion and moving forward and these and the thematic ways that Obama speaks that drew Democrats to him in the first place. And then if you listen to it with Republican ears, it reminds you of the reasons why there has been so much clash and so much partisanship. And I think, as Mara alluded to, there was this sort of point by point point um, response. response to a lot of the charges that I think Republicans have made against the president. Which response was the spiciest to you? Who I would say in the current 
debate, when he talked about ISIS, the Islamic State, and the threat they pose, was really counter to the rhetoric that we hear from Republicans. As we focus on destroying ISIS, over-the-top claims that this is World War III just play into their hands. Masses of fighters on the back of pickup trucks, twisted souls plotting in apartments or garages, they pose an enormous danger to civilians. They have to be stopped. But they do not threaten our national existence. When I heard that hmm. line, all I could think was, what is going on in the minds of senators like John McCain and Lindsey Graham right now, who have been two of the most uh, vocal and forceful counterpoints yeah. on the Islamic states that saying that they are an incredibly important ex- existential threat and need to be taken more seriously. But what does this mean to a civilian listening? Right. Because on the first part of that graph, he's saying, oh, it's just a bunch of guys in pickup trucks. But then he goes on to say they pose an enormous danger to civilians. Civilians are the ones that are watching this speech. Well, the civilians, here's, here's what he did. This was a really interesting paragraph to me. For people who really are tuned in, they know that Chris Christie said we are in the next world war. So he was pushing back against Chris Christie without naming him. However, he also knows that he has gotten into a lot of trouble and he's been out of sync with the American people when he tries to poo-poo ISIS or say they're just the JV team. So he says they pose an enormous danger to civilians, but they're not an existential threat. And I think even John McCain and Lindsey Graham wouldn't say that they can wipe out America. They're not a threat to our national existence, but they are a big threat. And that's why he spent quite a bit of time yeah. in this speech yeah. talking does, about what he was doing, why the strategy was right. And also, he even defended himself against this perennial criticism that he refuses to call ISIL Islamic, terrorism. Islamic terrorism. We sure don't need to push away vital allies in this fight by echoing the lie that ISIL is somehow representative of one of the world's largest religions. And he goes on to say that what they are, let's call them what they are, killers, fanatics who need to be wiped out. And he also goes on to kind of take some subtle jabs, I think, at some GOP candidates like Ted Cruz and Donald Trump when he says, you know. Our answer needs to be more than tough talk or calls to carpet bomb civilians. That may work as a TV soundbite, but it doesn't pass muster on the world stage. Yeah, and that was one of the things that that I took away from it, too, is it's very clear from this speech that President Obama has been paying attention to the Republican presidential field and the debates and the rhetoric, and that it was interesting to me that he used this platform as a way to respond to them. On Trump, reading between his lines here, when he talked about tone, when he talked about the way religious tolerance, uh, obviously referring to Trump's comments on uh, stopping Muslims from entering the country. He also made reference to, uh, Ted Cruz made a comment about uh, lighting up the sand in the Middle East and, and bombing in the Middle East. Carpet and he said, we can't it. carpet yeah. bomb our way out of this using his words directly. So clearly, responding directly without naming them to the rhetoric of the Republicans on foreign policy and essentially saying how wrong he thinks they are. Does this work? Look, he has a huge, this is the bully pulpit. If you want to know what the bully pulpit is, this is it. And we don't know if it's going to work, but he had an opportunity to provide a counter narrative. And up until now, the Republican candidates were more or less operating in a vacuum. Hmm. And he 
join the debate with them. And in some ways, you know, this is Obama's closing argument. This is his last State of the Union. It's one of the last times this year he's going to address the entire nation plan that we know of. He'll probably speak at the convention. Probably. This but we is don't the know biggest sure. speech most Americans yeah. will ever hear. But the last big speech. So this yeah. was his, you know, you swing for the fences on this one. And another thing that I Did would say. Did he hit the fences? Well, the other thing that I would say about that I thought was striking to me about this speech that was different than other State of the Unions is that it was it was kind of unambitious when it comes to policy. Yes. You know, and like he really gave no policy specifics. Yeah, this was more about bigger themes, bigger ideas. This wasn't about a legislative to-do list for the year ahead. And was that, you know, there was all this ramp up before the speech of his team saying it's going to be a different speech. It's going to be so yeah. different. Was that the difference that he was speaking That of? was one of the that biggest one ones. Them, yeah. And quite frankly, it makes perfect sense. He can't get anything yeah. big through Congress. <laughs> he did talk about big things. He talked about the big things that he wants. What he didn't say is here's the legislative vehicle that I want yeah. uh, Congress to work on. Like by the extent of the hype I was hearing, I was waiting for like something. <laughs> you were waiting for Boston two thousand and four. You were waiting for a legislative vehicle. I was waiting for, that. That was waiting for yeah. like a musical well, cameo. Well, like, or there you was were just so much roll up. I, I, I really. Right? That's why I was saying they missold it. They pointed us they in the direction that it was going to be it. something really different. What they meant, the, the most honest thing they said in the in the previews was, it's not going to be a laundry list of policy proposals. Yeah. That just was say correct. That. Don't. Like, tell yes. me it's going to be, yeah. you know, a I also freaking Beyonce concert. There was and then something, we get, we get there. and maybe Mark can help me find the word that I'm looking for here. And I don't, flippant is not the word. That is not the word. But the, and but there was something about the president that I thought was also, he. there was some humor in him when he opened up and said, I know some of you need to get back to Iowa. Well, um, in the speech when he said, you know, when Sputnik, we didn't debate that it was up there. Yeah. Like he had sort of an it was very much. A, it felt like the whole time he was silently saying, well, duh, you guys don't get this. You this guys don't know this. is what drives Rob. Public. Yes. Nuts. You know what and it's that's like? That's why I'm trying Nuts. to get this word. It's the, like it's the cool mocking yes. humor. Yes. They they I don't, don't like, like that. But even though I mean it felt like that kid in like ninth grade algebra two who finishes all the problems first and is just like, oh well you just gotta cross, multiply, and divide. You don't know that? <laughs> the what? first huh? that walks up and puts his paper yeah. on the teacher's desk and exactly. walks out the door. It was a little I bit I could of see that. how folks would not like that. Yeah. He was a little like, and I think that this one I say when I was listening to the speech, if I was listening to it with Republican ears as a Republican congressman, there was a lot in there that I thought was really provocative towards them. Yeah. The line where he also says, where, you know, we're going back here. He's going back to Dodd-Frank and financial reform and the financial crisis when he says, hey, food stamp recipients didn't cause the financial collapse. Immigrants ha- are not the reason why your paycheck hasn't gone up. I mean, things like that to a Republican congressman ear is very provocative. His comments on climate change. If anybody still wants to dispute the science around climate change, have at it. You will be pretty lonely because you'll be debating our military, most of America's business leaders, the majority of the American people, almost the entire scientific community, and 200 nations around the world who agree it's a problem and intend to solve it. But yeah. I mean, there was a little bit of like pat on the head oh, yeah. towards Republicans oh, yeah. in the speech that I thought but, was what made it to my ears a, a very political speech. I mean, it was very, very, it was very partisan political. in that regard. And why, and why wouldn't it be? Right. Um, you know, Rand Paul tweeted something to the effect that I'm here at home watching and I just yelled, you lie. It's a good thing I'm not in the chamber. <laughs> you know, but, the, you know, th- but but he didn't try 
to to convince people that climate change is real. He said, this is settled. The country has moved on. And he is with majority opinion on a lot yeah. of these things. Majority Republican opinion is on the other side. Now, there was one moment where he kind of got a little bit reflective and admitted that he might have messed up himself, too. He's talked about one of the regrets of his presidency. It's one of the few regrets of my presidency that the rancor and suspicion between the parties has gotten worse instead of better. I have no doubt a president with the gifts of Lincoln or Roosevelt might have better bridged the divide. And I guarantee I'll keep trying to be better so long as I hold this office. Does that count as humble bragging or not? I <laughs> He's don't basically know. saying, oh, well, I'm not Lincoln or Roosevelt. But, but I'm, I'm close. close. But I'm exactly, close. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is a debate that, depending on who you talk to, is a debate that, I mean, it lights up everybody of who is to blame for the coarseness and the grading of our politics. And if you talk to Democrats, they say they put a lot of blame on not necessarily Republicans, but uh, talk radio, Republican media. A lot of that that has been driven in the Obama era. Republicans will say that they believe that the president has been arrogant, that he has mishandled Congress, that he's gone too far and has inflamed tensions when he could have calmed them down. But referencing that at least acknowledges that this has been one of the great debates of the Obama era. Who is to blame for the negative and the increasing nastiness in American politics. But also, he came into office wanting to bridge the divide, and he thought and he would be happen. a unifying figure. In and fact, he was, he was polarizing. Yes, originally he was. But you know, for the other months. for three months. <laughs> but the other thing that's important, and I think this gets glossed over a little bit, he spent a lot of time, very specifically and substantively, talking about why our politics is broken. He talked about gerrymandering. He talked yeah. about campaign finance reform. He talked about how members of Congress on both sides tell him privately they don't like spending all this time raising money. Yeah. They're sick of it. So, and now that is a very big Democratic Party issue. Don't kid yourself. That was a big chunk of of speech time directed at the Democratic base and voting rights a, and voting about, rights. Yeah. And that's that's a very voting big issue for them. But he did talk in substance about the kinds of forces that make politics broken, not just what he could have done to bridge more to bridge the divide. Yeah. Uh, OK, let's talk about the visuals for one second and then we'll jump on. There's always the faces of the people who were just not excited to be there. I noticed <laughs> a lot. Paul Ryan. I noticed uh, uh, the face of. Mr. Lindsey Graham, I noticed the face. Who else had some weird face? I think Marco Rubio had a also, very... I, in some ways, I feel like it's hard on them because if you are Paul Ryan or Marco Rubio, maybe Lindsey Graham was more surprised, but Marco Rubio had to know going in there that the cameras are going to be on him because he's running for president. So, yeah. And this... he was the only one. Ted Cruz was in New Hampshire. Bernie Sanders was in there. Oh, that's a good thing. <laughs> Bernie, Bernie looked a little out of it, too. Yeah. They showed Bernie, too. Yeah, but that, um, he has Mark... an easier job when you're of the same party. It's probably hard to maintain a like polite, active listening face for an hour yeah. when you know cameras are trying to get that moment. I wanted so. to know what the side chatter was between Biden and Paul Ryan. Mm-hmm. You know, I think with but Joe Biden, is, you know, I hung out in the chamber after the speech. Uh, it, the lights turned off. You know, it was over. And Joe Biden stayed on the floor of the House for probably 15 or 20 more minutes after Obama left, just huh. talking to members, getting pictures with them, you know, hugging them. It's I would, also his last ride, too. Yeah. You know, and I would say this about Joe Biden. He is probably one of the most universally liked figures still in politics huh. and that Paul Ryan and him, I think, have a very good relationship. I would also say they are both Irishmen, and Irishmen are good at getting along and making <laughs> conversation. <laughs> and, you know, Paul Ryan, when I watched Paul Ryan, and he, of course, was the one who was the most watched because he was behind the president and he was going to be on camera all night long. Yeah. he, I felt he had chosen the smile. He was. Try- he had hmm. chosen what he thought was kind of a neutral, <laughs> not too enthusiastic, polite smile. 
it's a hard job. It is a hard to job. To sit there and compose your face when you really want to yeah. talk back to the president. Another hard job is the response to this speech. Yeah. Uh, Nikki Haley, governor of South Carolina, gave it last night. How do we think she did? It had a mixed reception among Republicans. The two main things she did that really jumped out after she did the quick summary of all of Obama's failings, which is kind of that's what you do pro forma. She said that Republicans have to take responsibility themselves for broken politics. We as Republicans need to own that truth. We need to recognize our contributions to the erosion of the public trust in America's leadership. We need to accept that we've played a role in how and why our government is broken. And the other thing she did was to push back against Donald Trump. During anxious times, it can be tempting to follow the siren call of the angriest voices. We must resist that temptation. No one who is willing to work hard, abide by our laws, and love our traditions should ever feel unwelcome in this country. And what's interesting is she went on to say, of course, we should stop illegal immigration. And of course, we should stop um, refugees coming into the country if we cannot discern their intent. However, this is what is the bite that jumped out at everybody. And she's on the short list of the in among the chattering class yeah. for who might be vi- that on, sounded the, on like the ticket. That someone campaigning for the general election. Except she for the for, wait a minute. That sounded Sorry. like somebody who wants a spot on the ticket, but not on the Trump ticket. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. It's also interesting because so who picks the response? It's the speaker and the majority leader Mm -hmm. are the two that get to decide who does it. So the sort of underlying tone that I thought was really interesting is it's a reminder that there are forces within the party who don't necessarily want to call out Donald Trump by name, but are very actively trying to counter uh, the message that he's put out as a leading contender in the presidential race that this is not what the Republican Party stands for. This is not what the Republican Party is. One tweet that I really liked yesterday, I think it was Jonathan Martin of The New York Times. Forgive me if I get it wrong. It was a reminder that there are three parties in American politics right now. Which yeah. are? There's the two parties inside the Republican Party, the establishment and what we want to call the Trumpians, and then the Democrats. <laughs> yeah, speaking of Trump, he did tweet one response. At first I was like, why isn't Trump tweeting? What's going on? Then he finally did tweet and he wrote, the SOTU speech is really boring, slow, lethargic, very hard to watch. And that was his response. Anyway, overall, what do we think these speeches change? If anything. Well, I from the perspective of what it what does it mean with what they're going to get done this year? I think it changes very little. Okay. I, and the things that the president acknowledged in his speech were the things that already have been talked about in the orbit of what's possible this year. Uh, one, there's still some talk about doing criminal justice reform. That's still on the table, although it's reform? hard. A sentencing reform. Yeah. Um, and there's a there's a strange bipartisan mix of lawmakers who want to get this done. The president likes it. It's possible. It's not a sure thing, but there's going to be some efforts. He did mention last night a trade deal he'd really like to get done before he leaves office. perhaps some minor legislation here and there. But like I said, it was not a very ambitious policy speech. It wasn't about, wow, look at all the stuff we can get done before I leave. It was more about, I think, closing arguments and setting the stage for the elections this year. Yeah. And the year before an election is a very inauspicious time to get legislation through. However, there have been examples, and 1996 was one of them, when if one party feels that it's not going to win the White House, and it does have control of Congress. It has a real interest in working with the president to yeah. to, to beef up their own list of accomplishments. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, there are surprising things that that can get done. I mean, no child left behind. That was a surprise. It got got the Affordable reformed. Care Act the, the happened for- in an election year. Well, it wasn't yeah, a presidential it election year, and it wasn't but it bipartisan. Was an year. Yeah, and anything that happens this time has to be bipartisan. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. 
Do we know anything yet about how the public received these two speeches? I haven't seen polls. All I've heard is the um, instant dial groups that some networks have and that it was received very well. And as a matter of fact, CNN said it was the most positive reception for those kinds of dial groups of any of his State of the Unions. But I think we'll see more in the days to come. And it's probably safe to say that the speech probably didn't change any minds, right? That this was not the point of the speech. If you turned into the State of the Union supporting Barack Obama, you probably woke up this morning still supporting Barack Obama. And the opposite is true. If this is a president you've opposed for eight years, that's you woke up opposing Barack Obama today as well. But what the White House was hoping was that if you were one of those people who supported him, you're feeling a little more excited and energized now than you were before he spoke. And maybe you're going to tune into the Democratic primary campaign, or maybe you're going to answer that email from the Hillary people, something like that. Okay, that's all the time we have for this one. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with our usual roundup of political news later in the week, including Thursday night's GOP debate. Until then, let us know if you like the show. Find us on Twitter and catch our political coverage on your local public radio station as well. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. And I'm Susan Davis, and I cover Congress. And we'll see you next time on the NPR Politics Podcast. 